Hello, welcome to my podcast, Tea and Tonic. This is about giving those in the arts and creative industries the chance to tell you about how they got to where they are today. The chance to shout a bit louder about themselves, and perhaps never has there been a time when this is more needed. My guest today is theatre company manager Neil White from Bingley in Yorkshire. Neil has been in the business for over three decades, first starting out as assistant stage manager on Aladdin at the Alhambra Theatre in Bradford in 1987, to most recently being at the helm of the international tour of musical Book of Mormon. More on that in a moment. It brings me great pleasure to welcome Neil White. Hello. Hiya, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Really good, really good. Thank you for agreeing to chat today. Neil, first of all, what beverage have you got in hand? I've got a nice cup of green tea. Oh, very healthy. I know. <laughs> um, I've got a chocolate vanilla and cocoa tea. Oh, that's a bit exotic, yeah. K- kind of, it's just this kind of the chocolate hit, but without the chocolate. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's neat. Your CV is incredible. There's not really many shows that you haven't worked on, Uh how did it all start for you? Because I'm guessing back in the 80s was a perhaps a different way of getting into theatre. It was bizarre. Um, I come from a very small village in Yorkshire. Um, my parents, um, my mum was a teacher, my dad was a careers advisor for Bradford University. Um, so it was sort of but theatre was always around. Um, my grandparents were in choirs. I was in choirs from when I was younger. My mum wanted to be an actress. She would have been an actress if she could have done. Um, but at the time, it wasn't really done. So she became a teacher. But I'd always been taken to the theatre from being sort of like as long as I can remember, one of my earliest memories is sitting in the Alhambra in Bradford and watching the start of the pantomime. So I was in, around, you know, um, involved in theatre, then started to do amateur dramatics, did theatre at school, really wanted to do it. My school wanted me to become a teacher as well, which fills me with slight horror. But um, I just sort of kept going and went in I did my local amateur shows performing but also went in and helped build scenery helped do lighting things like that and then when I was 15 um, I heard about the National Youth Theatre in London and I thought I really you know really really want to do that so I went along for my interview in Manchester and got a place and then suddenly when I was 16 was like spent the whole summer in London working in theatre and doing crazy productions, um, did the most amazing production of Murder in the Cathedral in Spitalfields Church that actually had Daniel Craig in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly being involved in all that world and seeing that I could do it. And then I went back to school, did my O-levels, and at the time, the way into stage management was to go to one of the drama schools in London but my local council would give um, grants for university, but they wouldn't give drama school grants. And there was no way my parents could have afforded, you know, to send me to London, pay for me to live in London and the fees as well. So it wasn't going to be an option. Mm. So um, I'd done work experience at the Alhambra in Bradford. 
I used to go in like every Saturday when I was like 15 and watch shows from backstage. When I was 16, um, I got a job front of house there. I also worked backstage when I could. I dressed there. I worked in box office. I did. So I used to go to school, finish at school, go into Bradford, sit in Bradford Library, do my homework, then go and work the show at the Alhambra, then come home, get up in the morning. So I was slightly sort of obsessed that this was going to be my career. When I was 16, um, Cannonball were doing Babes in the Wood at the Alhambra in Bradford. It was about the year before they did the show at the Palladium. And I used to go in and um, if any of the crew were off ill, I'd fill in for them. And the assistant stage manager had been knocked off his motorbike. So I covered for the last two weeks assistant stage manager and then went back to school, did all my usual stuff for the next year. And then about November, I was just doing my A-levels, starting my A-level courses. I got a phone call from the producers and they said, would I like the ASM job, assistant stage manager job in the pantomime? And they would give me my provisional equity card. Because at the time, you had to have a provisional equity card before you could work in the theatre. You had to work 40 weeks on a provisional card before you could do a number one tour or work in London. It was the big chance. So I went to my parents and went, can I leave school? Um, <laughs> and they were pretty cool about it, actually. They were. They said that it was fine. Um, they knew it was my they, you know, absolute dream to do it. But they gave me a year. And they said that if I hadn't done anything in a year, I had to go back and do my A-levels and then see what happened then. So... I left school on the Monday and started rehearsals for Aladdin with Sue Pollard on Tuesday. That is crazy. You were 17? 17, yeah. Wow. So trying to get your, your theatre miles, if you like. Almost like your provisional driving licence, but the theatre version. Well, exactly. And also, you know, Bradford, Bradford Alhambra Panto is one of the biggest pantos in the country. And that panto was Sue Pollard, Paul Shane from Heidi High, and it coincided with the last episodes of Heidi High being shown. So Heidi High was riding on a crest of a wave. It ran from December through to the end of February as well. So it was, you know, the time of doing three months of panto twice daily. And it was great for me because it was being thrown into it. Right. So you were conscientious from quite a young age and you knew that this was what you wanted to do. You had your mind set. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's like anyone who works in theatre or the arts. It's not just a job. You have to have the passion to do it. And with what's going on at the moment, we'll probably talk about later. We're not talking about people who just do jobs. We're talking about people who've wanted to do this, who train to do this from an early age. You know, you don't suddenly at 17 in a careers interview just decide you're going to be a dancer or, you know, or a performer. You know, a musician starts when they're six, seven years old. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have the passion to do it because it's a world you enter. Yeah, it is a job at the end of the day. And, you know, I'm aware that, you know, it's a job I can switch off from the job. But you have to commit so much more to it because it's <laughs> a crazy world to be in. So you're working on a really big show with some big names at 17. 
what happened after Panto? I went back to National Youth Theatre as a paid member of their stage management staff to do a production of Caucasian Chalk Circle at Brecht Mm -hmm. in Newcastle. And then the producers of Panto were producing summer season. And at the time, every seaside town had the big summer season. And they were producing Cannonball and the Three Degrees in a big spectacular in Paynton and Devon. So at still 17, I jumped on the train down to Devon and (laughs) spent the whole of the summer there. You're not even 18 at this point, and you're dealing with and working closely with some big names that have strong views, and this must have stood you in pretty good stead. It's terrifying. You know, it's like I come from a small village. It's not like I even come from a town, you know. Um, My... My nearest town is Bingley, which is a very quiet little market town. Bradford is quite close. Leeds is quite close. But, you know, I was brought up in a very small village. So so me being thrust into the middle of all of this, I'd had a taste for it in National Youth Theatre. But you walk in and you've got Cannonball, who at the time were like Anton Deck. You know, they were highest rated artists on ITV. The summer season was pretty much sold out, but also working with the Three Degrees, who were absolutely massive recording stars, and me being there very northern um, in the middle of it all, I'm very young, but you just sort of knuckle down and do it and just do your job properly. But also at the time, you know, it was directed by big TV directors. You know, employment rights were very different, and you knew that if you messed up, you'd be on the train home. So it was sort of, yeah, get on with it. At the time, the theatre didn't open until just before the show. It didn't open until about 45 minutes. So I used to have to go in on that job every morning at half past nine and mop the stage myself as well. So <sighs> then go back and do two shows at six and nine. <laughs> so, you know, your work ethic at a young age was already really, really high. Mm. You then, within a couple of years, went on to stage manage Buddy Holly, didn't you? The Buddy Holly story? It was crazy because I, I did summer season, um, stayed around for a month working at the theatres in Paynton and Torquay because I had Panto for a different producer in Birmingham, which was with Rod Hull and Emu. Huh? So assistant stage manager on that. But the great thing with that was I got to be Emu for most of the show. So I have to go to Rod Hull and have Emu lessons. So... I had an emu stitched into my black clothes that I wore backstage. And if ever I had emu on my arm, emu always had to be alive. This is just really crazy. But emu used to appear by himself in certain scenes in Panto. So those scenes, I was emu. That Um, is brilliant. You were earning your theatre miles in all aspects, on the stage, backstage... But also working with some incredible people like that panto was directed by a guy called Jonathan Kiley, who mm. uh, is very high up in Kudos. And, you know, he's sort of like one of the executive producers of a lot of the Kudos pantos. So it was working with Jonathan. So you picked up a lot of things from Jonathan, who is also playing the prince in the panto as well. From there, from working for EMB, who produced that, Paul Elliott. He was doing a tour of a play called The Fifteen Streets, a Catherine Cookson play. So they asked me if I wanted to do that. 
doing 15 streets, which was weekly touring, again, doing something that I hadn't done. And then they were producing this musical called Buddy. It was about to open in Plymouth. And they said, do I want to come and be ASM on it when it goes into London? They said, they don't think it will run very long in London. It, you know, it might run 10 weeks. But it suddenly became this massive hit. So I started Buddy when I was 18, assistant stage manager. Seven months, and also I had to be book cover. So book on a show is calling a show, calling the lights, calling everything, uh, covering the deputy stage manager, which... I had to learn very quickly, something I hadn't really done, but I'd I'd watched it a lot. Seven months later, the deputy stage manager got another job and left, and they gave me the job. So I was suddenly became DSM, and then a year later, the stage manager left. So then I became stage manager. So suddenly at twenty, going into twenty one, I was stage manager on a West End show, which that. Boy, at 17, never even dreamed about. Was that quite a big transition up? You know, looking back on it, I probably was too young. But I think it was great because I learned by my mistakes. And it was an environment I'd worked in for a long time. So it wasn't a strange environment. But then after Buddy, I took a step back and went back to being deputy stage manager again. And was in DSM for quite a few years, doing different shows. I did a production of Nolan Gertie next, which was with Susan Hampshire and Edward Petherbridge, which was produced by a big producer, Howard Panter. So Howard, who set up um, Ambassador Theatre Group. And then from there, I went to do the most insane production of My Fair Lady, which was directed by Simon Callow um, with Edward Fox. Eliza was played by Helen Hobson. All the costumes were designed by Jasper Conran. It was an opera designer. On paper, it seemed to be the most amazing production. On stage, it didn't really work. But it was great because, you know, I was suddenly sat next to Simon Callow in a rehearsal room. You went on to become company manager on the Rocky Horror Show. I went through, did My Fair Lady, then did Me and My Girl for three years, which was the most amazing show and still is just... Every theatre still talks about that production. Uh, go back and they go, oh, do you remember me and my girl? It was just, the, you know, had Gary Wilmot, who did the oh, first and the third one. I've got such a crush on Gary Wilmot, Neil. And I I pretty much told him at the Palladium Panto, I think he knew. <laughs> <laughs> then I went into London. I did Tommy in London, Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And then doing me and my girl, um, Tommy and... Beauty, I used to have to cover and be holiday cover for company manager. So I finished Beauty, then I went off to work for P&O to launch a, the entertainment systems on a cruise ship. And then in the meantime, I'd just done Panto as company manager in Milton Keynes when Milton Keynes opened. I was doing um, P&O, coming back, doing bits of short runs of theatre in the UK, then came back from P&O, did Godspell to start with as company manager. And then from there went on to Rocky. And then that was the start being a company manager. Did you have continuous work the whole time? I've never been out of work since I was 17. Oh, my goodness me. That's incredible. A testament to how hard you work and how highly you're thought of in the industry. Were you able to keep your feet on the ground the whole time? Because I know what a party's like... 
during a run. And they're pretty cool. There's lots of fun. You know, you were extremely young, working with some big names. You could have been led astray at any time. (laughs) The thing is, when I was younger, I'd be the first to go out in the week. And when it was ASM, DSM, SM, you know, I had a great time. But now I'm older and um, (laughs) a company manager can't do it anymore. (laughs) It's that thing of you work hard and you play hard and then there's a time when everyone has to grow up because you know you can't survive the next day with a hangover and yeah (laughs) everyone needs to go home to bed and get some sleep yeah it's like you know I just want to be tucked up in bed now with a cup of tea (laughs) going back a bit you went to the Edinburgh Fringe didn't you as your first proper company manager role and that must have been amazing it was brilliant it was through the production managers who um, were production managers of Beauty and the Beast, they found me one day and this gentleman in London who was a, a multi-millionaire gynecologist had this dream of doing producing a season of plays in Edinburgh. And one of them was written by a friend of his. So I went to Edinburgh with, I think it was six shows, Everyone else was arriving on the fringe with transit vans and we had like 45 foot trailers. And one of our plays started off in Plymouth at the drum at the Theatre Royal. And another one of the plays, which is a one man play, rehearsed for three months before it went. The season was called Crazy Ladies. We had a one woman show with um, an actress called Sylvia Miles, who sadly passed away this year. She won the Oscar for Midnight Cowboy. Oh, wow. Sort of a retrospective of her life. And her show was incredible. But then the top billing of our season was Joan Rivers. And it was like the legend and the most amazing, wonderful person to work with. Looking back, and you, you sort of pinch yourself that I got to spend quite a lot of time with her, and she's just a brilliant, she's just brilliant to be around her. Because she wanted to have days out with you, didn't she? And Yeah, you know, we were all slightly terrified, because she is, like, a big star. And after the show, she was like, where are you all going now? And we were going to the Edinburgh Fringe Bar, which was at um, Student Union. She went, I'll come with you. And it was like, okay. She had like makeup and hair artists with her all the time. So she used to have a morning makeup with the morning lashes. Um, the lashes used to change at lunchtime. Then she went to show lashes with the makeup artist. Then it was after show and makeup like that the whole time. It's my dream. So she was dolled up. <laughs> yeah. Clanking into a student union bar and she went, I'll buy you all a drink. The Louis Vuitton goes on the counter and she's there with a plastic pint in her hand. And then on the um, the Sunday, I got a phone call from her PA saying, Joan wants to spend the day with you. Could you come and join us? So the car was sent around for me. She had a list of things she wanted to do. So she wanted to do one of the ghost walks. Well, Edinburgh's like sort of the hills and the stairs. So, and she didn't go anywhere unless she had like three inch heel on. So we were doing the ghost walk with the limo following us behind. <laughs> The poor host on the ghost walk was just like trying to do all that to Joan Rivers. And then she took me to the witchery for dinner. And then she wanted to see Puppetry of the Penis. So I had to sit on the front row of Puppetry of the Penis with Joan Rivers. It was just, and the guys performing were just like, yeah, we're naked in front of Joan Rivers. Yeah. Oh, it's just, 
looked back in your life and went, yeah, I watched two naked Australians with journalists. Yeah. And wasn't her rider huge, but all of the lovely food on it was actually for the crew? Well, yeah, a big American star. She had the rider that, you know, you'd expect. When we did a two-show day, there was all this food on the rider. So I went to a dressing room when um, Joan, all the food's there. She went, that's not for me. I've been to Mike's and Spencer's got a sandwich. That's for you guys because producers don't look after you. It's just legend. Absolutely. Would you say you work with more people who are just lovely and kind and wonderful in the business than those who are difficult? You know, it's very rare you work with someone who's very, very difficult. And often they're difficult because people aren't listening to them or they're not getting what they need. And I think you always find that the bigger name of the person, the easier they normally are. When I was in London doing Buddy, I used to do quite a lot of charity shows and work for companies like West End Cares and stuff like that. And we did this production of Alan Bennett's Talking Heads. We did it for three Sundays at Theatre Royal Haymarket. And that was Ian McKellen, Sheila Hancock, Imelda Staunton and Stephanie Cole. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And couldn't have been the loveliest group of people. I was meeting Ian McKellen. I was absolutely terrified but just such a lovely warm person and they all were you know I did a show called The Play What I Wrote and I was company manager on that but also I used to do quite a bit of the guest star direction because we used to have a different guest star every night and my first guest star on that um, was Anna Blackman so beautiful I was in a rehearsal room in Malvern desperately trying to remember what the guest star did and it's suddenly me and Honor Blackman in a room for two hours together and a lovely person. I grew up watching her in the upper hand and just adored her from such a young age and what you said about Sir Ian McKellen Neil he came to see Aladdin at the Mayflower that I was lucky enough to get a part in with Paul O'Grady when Lily was brought back and we heard that he walked into the theatre, coat, hat, came in, watched the show and left again, got the train back to London. There was no fuss. It was just all done really quietly. And yeah, I just couldn't believe that he was in the audience. You've done loads of tours and lots of West End shows. Is there a big difference between, you know, staying in the West End on a production and then taking a show out? It's a very different thing. In in London, you have to build up to a West End opening and then... You have to maintain that same show for weeks, months, years. And that's a really hard discipline to keep it fresh. And also a company in London, it's very much, you know, they arrive to do the show, 10.30, they leave to go home. And you don't get the sort of social aspect of it. Being on tour is, if you're doing a big show, say like Miss Saigon, you have a press night every five to six weeks where The show has to be on press night level, but not just on press night level, on Cameron Macintosh press night level. So everything has to be perfect from the colour of the poster outside the building to every single lighting cue, everything, because Cameron is such a perfectionist. So you have that pressure all the time of keeping the show press night ready. And also a touring company will spend a lot more time with each other, which 
does create issues because it becomes like any family. And if you spent all your time with your family, you'd get slight tensions going on. But that's the brilliant thing about being on tour because you do get a lot closer to the people you work with. There must have been some big changes that you've seen then in the theatre industry and, and the way it works over the last three decades. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's sort of... Theatre was probably a very non-PC environment, which is one major thing. There are still battles, you know. It's sort of the BAME community are very badly represented in, like, a lot of jobs in theatre. It's sort of encouraging people from backgrounds to be part of the technical side of the show, which you don't see. Also, equality between the sexes, it's... Theatre has always been a very male-dominated profession. It's still, if you look at, um, say, musical directors, there are very few female musical directors with the big producers. Women are very underrepresented. You know, I'm incredibly lucky at the moment to work for Sonia Friedman, who is the most incredible producer, but also to work with a company where you know, a lot of the management are female and there's representation across the board because theatre was a very white middle-class environment, but that is changing, but it's taking a long time to change. Also, because of you know people not having to do their sort of equity probation, you do get a lot of younger people in the bigger shows now, which is something that didn't used to happen. You used to have to work for a few years before you could get a tour or a West End show. But a lot of people now graduate and go straight into them, which is quite difficult because people don't learn a lot of the craft and pick up a lot of those amazing traditions you have. Mm. And that makes it a very different industry. Has there ever been a time when you've thought, I don't want to do this anymore, or there's been a show you've worked on that you didn't enjoy and you just wanted to take some time out or has it been pure love all the way through no um i've done shows i've absolutely hated and hated with a passion and uh, it's sort of it's really difficult when you're say a company manager on a show like that i did one show i won't name it but it was absolutely terrible and you used to have to go and take it into theatres and, you know, meet all the regional press and do all those press interviews, picking it up and having to lie through your teeth because, oh, yeah, you know, it's great. And just thinking it's terrible. I'm actually dreading you seeing it. It's really difficult because you're there as a producer's ambassador. And if the show is terrible, it's just the hardest thing in the world to do. Well, I've met you a number of times before big shows. I think Mary Poppins and Oliver and yeah, yeah. you looked smiley and happy then, so I don't think it was those. <laughs> no. Mary Poppins, for example, was just such a beautiful gift of the show to do. Before lockdown happened, you were working on Book of Mormon, which opened yeah. in 2019. Where were you at then when the government made the announcement that everything was going to close back in March? We opened Book of Mormon last year in Manchester, did 13 weeks in Manchester, and then took the show to Europe and did a European tour. We came back to Bristol in January, did a great run in Bristol, 
And we'd been open in Birmingham for two weeks and having a brilliant time with the beautiful Birmingham Hippodrome. You got wind of things happening. You know, you could see restrictions happening around, but there wasn't really any clear indication. And we sort of suspected we might finish at some point, but, and the Society of London Theatre and the um, UK Theatre went to the government and weren't given really any clear indication. And then I was watching that press conference on the Monday night and wardrobe had been in, all the costumes were set, all the technical checks were done for the show. And Boris advised that uh, theatres should close. He didn't tell them, he advised. And suddenly it created, you know, I had the theatre management in my office going, we need to close. So then there was the calls to the producers because at that point it wasn't, you must close, it was an advice to close. So it, the decision was taken. The company were warming up at six o'clock, had to walk on stage and go, guys, that's it. Stay around in Birmingham tonight. We'll let you know first thing in the morning what's happening. So the next morning, we'll let everyone go home. And our technical crew came in to tidy up and put away everything they could. But we just left Book of Mormon in Birmingham. And Book of Mormon is still there in Birmingham. And I guess the audience that night were told, as they were arriving, go home? Well, thankfully, you know, with theatre box offices now, they can normally alert a lot of people. And the ones they couldn't just arrived. Because at six o'clock, a lot of people set off. So it was people just arriving and being told that's it. And then we tidied up the next day. I got home um, late on the Tuesday and complete uncertainty and, you know, uncertainty about everything. We didn't know if that was it completely, if we were getting paid or what. And But the whole thing with lockdown at the moment, you have – there are some amazing people in our industry at the moment. Our producer, Sonia Friedman, is just like campaigning so much and lobbying. Um, Simon, our general manager, the amount of work he's having to do with when dates are postponed, booking them for next year. The regional theatres like Mike Ockwell at Southampton, he's absolutely fighting to keep the Mayflower alive at the moment. And it is a fight because... No one knows. There's no clear indication. And these theatres, like the Mayflower, costs a lot of money every week to keep open. You know, the Mayflower has been a really successful theatre, but it is a charity. And any money the Mayflower raises goes back into keeping that beautiful building in the state it's in. You know, it had the big refurbishment last year. But, you know, you have all those people fighting at the moment to keep theatre alive. And it's suddenly been in the middle of that, in the middle of no man's land. For me, after like 30 odd years, this is the longest I've been away from the theatre since I'm probably seven, eight years old. You've now been at home yeah. for three months. How have you been? I arrived back and the same as everybody, absolutely not knowing what was going on. And I got home, looked on Facebook and my local community Facebook site there was an advert from our local co-op shop wanting temporary employers because things were going into lockdown and co-op recruiting because suddenly all the local shops were getting busier. So 
put my application in, went for an interview, and since I've been working for the co-op, which is probably the hardest work I've ever done, but just working in the middle of the community through it all, and the shop in our village is very much a community hub, and um, I've been doing community volunteering and looking after like some of the old people in my area and just checking in on them, and just keeping myself sane that way, but also doing all the jobs around the house that I haven't done for a while, just dug a new pond, um, decorated everything. It's it's that thing of keeping yourself mentally going because I think if you don't, it's sort of the situation we're all in at the moment. We don't know if we've got jobs at the end of the month, at the end of the year, and there's no timeline to to restarting. So we're hoping Mormon starts soon, but we don't know when it will. But there are a lot of people in our industry that people haven't heard about that when lockdown happened, that was it. They were made redundant straight away. You know, theatre companies by the end of that week had lost their jobs and that was it. And at the moment, there's hundreds of people in theatres around the country being made redundant. And it's a terrible, terrible state of affairs. It's a scary time. I bet the co-op in your village are delighted to have you <laughs> and uh, and all your stories that you've got from Theatreland. We heard this week about the government's plan, the five steps to get theatres back open again, back up and running. Have you been given any inclination when Book of Mormon might be able to open again? No, not really, because the roadmap is useless to theatre producers because... You know, stage one is to start rehearsing and stage five is performance. But to start rehearsals on a show costs a lot of money. You know, rehearsal rooms cost money. You have to pay the cast. You couldn't start a cast rehearsing in September if, you know, you couldn't perform till January. It's It doesn't make sense. So unless you have a date for stage or a potential date for stage five, you can't start stage one. And at the moment, without a clear roadmap, you don't know when you're going to start. Thankfully, our producer, Sonia, she's determined that Mormon will be back. And our dates we've postponed from this year have been put into next year, which is great. You know, and there is that hope there but you don't know when the start of the year is going to be. And also the terrifying thing at the moment is pantomime season because um, people don't realise how important pantomime is to theatre. It's To a lot of theatres, it's a, a massive amount of their income for the year, but it takes planning. And if there isn't a clear indication, it won't be ready in time and it won't happen everyone I've spoken to is missing going to the theatre so much it's part of the fabric of UK culture in terms of your job Neil you say that you're working at the co-op at the moment but were you able to access government help? Um, Yeah thankfully I've been furloughed but the the furlough scheme after July the management will have to start to contribute and the problem is these theatre managements haven't had any revenue through ticket sales. So there isn't the money around in a lot of companies 
to continue that scheme because you know you can't pay money if it's not there and and also with no time scale how long do you keep doing that and that's that's a sad situation you know every day on facebook i see friends who work in theaters being made redundant you know birmingham hippodrome a lot of their staff have been made redundant this week you know it's absolutely terrifying and these are people who i've known and worked with for 30 years and it's like your extended family around the theater like i walk into the mayflower in southampton i first worked at the mayflower when i was 18 and there's still people there from when i was 18 and it's sort of theaters like southampton birmingham norwich are like putting on a comfortable pair of slippers you walk in you know everybody and you know they're so important for the local community and those people are going and whatever happens at the other side of this it's going to be a very different place because people forget that the theater keeps the local restaurants in the street where the theater open the the local dry cleaners gets a lot of money each week dry cleaning from the theater you know the impact on the local economy is just amazing you know when i was at uni and i didn't have much money i said when i graduate and get my first job all my spare cash is going to go on going to the theatre. And so that's what I did. I would go to the theatre on my own all the time. I'd go and get a last-minute ticket that they release sometimes an hour and a half before curtain up. Why did you go? Because it gave me a sense of, A, community, B, I felt safe, and I, it would take me away from real life. Theatres have a pretty much similar atmosphere to a place of worship in a way they've got that like sense of occasion about them it is that sort of that magical thing when the lights go down and you just get transported and when you see something that's brilliant you just get completely absorbed in it and you know in the life theater is so important that it has that profound effect on people it's the same with music you know if you go you see an orchestra and it's brilliant it's amazing or if you go to a gig and you just get completely lost in it and that's the brilliant thing you don't get the same thing with watching something on telly you need that sense of occasion around you it's often the music of a show that opening before the mm-hmm. curtain goes up i get goosebumps i remember lion king when they proceed down the aisles that just made me cry, you know. Sometimes we need to invest our emotion in something else that's not about us. Exactly, and you know, to be transported away is brilliant. It's sort of, you know, that's why, you know, musicals like Les Mis are so, have lasted so long, because you laugh at it, you cry with it, it's sort of, it's great, and to have that emotion about something, but you can only get that emotion with seeing someone in front of you live emoting that and have that orchestra around you. Or if you go and see drama, seeing an actor, you can go and see a single actor on stage above a pub in London. And if that person is committed enough, you go on the journey with them. Mm. And that's a brilliant thing about performing arts. Absolutely. Well, at the moment, we're having to make do with the soundtrack to the Book of Mormon, Uh, in the car and at home but I've got my fingers crossed that 
it's going to open up as soon as is physically possible. In amidst your very, very busy working life, how do you relax? Massive gym goer. I love getting up in the morning. When I'm working, I love being in the gym by half past seven in the morning. And going, do that, just get everything out of my system, get some like 90s club tunes on in the headphones and just do it. I'm massive history buff, love, obsessed with Victorians. Everything Victorian is amazing. That's why Southampton's incredible because I can go over to Osborne and just sort of <laughs> wallow oh, in the wow. So to Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Yeah, yeah. It's the most incredible place ever. It's sort of if you're sort of into everything Victoriana, yeah. Um I love gardening, um, which has been brilliant this year because I'm just garden obsessed. I was actually gardening in the rain today, that's how crazy I um, yeah. My pond's got looked after. Um I read a lot, um, I listen to a lot of music. I'm terrible actually sitting down and relaxing. I like to be doing things. I just find, you know, like decorating, relaxing, or I used to write a lot. I haven't written a lot for a while, but um, I must start doing more because, yeah, I've written a lot of diaries over the years if everything's happened. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that could be turned into something for the stage. Probably a libel case. <laughs> <laughs> Who's been your biggest influence? Massive influence when I first started was a gentleman called Peter Todd, who was um, manager of the Alhambra in Bradford. And then he was the head of the campaign when Birmingham Hippodrome went through their massive refurbishment. And I did my work experience um, under Peter when I was 15. And he was just the most brilliant influence. Um, Also, when I was doing summer season in Torquay, the guy who ended up renting a room from um, was a local sort of small-time producer. And he gave me some of the best advice about, like, self-governing and self-managing and self-standards. And, you know, at the time, I was working with a lot of people who were quite rock and roll, and it wasn't sort of me. And he was going, you know, just keep your own standards and have the courage of your own convictions. Some of the producers I've worked with, you know, like working for Cameron McIntosh and doing, you know, three shows for him, it's being absolutely amazed and inspired by his energy. And But also the thing with Cameron that I respect more than anything else is he wants to preserve theatre for the next generation. And if you ever go to one of his theatres in London, the Delphine Macintosh theatres, they're immaculate and beautiful and well-maintained to keep it going for the next hundred years and investing in our future rather than just the present. I think you can take inspiration from a lot of people around you. It's sort of Sonia, who I'm working for at the moment, is the most inspirational producer because, you know, she'll be doing Book of Mormon Harry Potter, but then she's producing Uncle Vanya or Leopoldstadt by Tom Stoppard. And, you know, big, challenging dramas. But then, but everything she does has got something to say. And I think, but also, you know, working for like quite an inspiring woman in the theatre is, is incredible as well. 
it's people who are doing something different and people who are trying to take things forward and preserve what we've got, but take it forward to the next generation. I think that's very important. That was my guest, company manager on Book of Mormon, Neil White. You can listen to Tea and Tonic on Spotify, Google, Deezer, Apple and TuneIn. Find me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan.